0: Welcome to the Faculty New Books podcast, covering the latest authors and publications from across the subject spectrum. What are network effects? Uh, Basically, a network effect occurs when the value of a standard increases as more people use it. So the classic example of this would be uh, language. Uh, Language is uh, a perfect example of network effect in the sense that, say you have two people who speak a language, uh, and uh, it has a certain value to it because they can communicate with each other. It's a, it's a standard that facilitates interaction between these two people. And then, if you add on a third person and three people, so this is a language spoken by only three people, then in that sense, uh, the value increases. And then you add on additional ten thousand; it grows even further because they have a larger pool of people with which who, whom they can speak and communicate. So the value each time you add someone to that network the value of that standard, i.e., in this case, language, words, uh, increases. But but a standard could be anything. Anything that facilitates interaction between agents is a standard. So, uh, for example, currencies are standards. They allow for, they facilitate interaction between agents. Telephone networks, radio frequencies, social media platforms, Facebook, for instance, messenger apps. Uh, The words that we're speaking right now are standards that allow us to communicate. Allows the listener to, to understand what I'm saying because we have common standards. The common standard, in the sense of the English language uh, norms, uh, contractual terms, rights, political institutions, laws, even moral standards. These are standards that facilitate interaction between agents. So um, there's a second um, component to a network effect, which is critical to this article, and that is the idea of lock in effects now a lock-in effect flows naturally from a network effect system so i'll go back to the example of language uh so with example of language look you're free to speak whatever language you want right uh you could uh speak somali uh, you know in, in whatever language you want and can pick you can make up your own language if you want but in actuality in practice you are essentially locked into the language that is spoken in your community. Uh, no one's forcing you, there's no gun to your head forcing you to speak that language, but in, you're, you're locked into that standard. Otherwise, you will not be able to communicate with others. So you you're it's it's kind of like a silent force that is trapping you into this, into, into the English language or whatever language happens to be the prevailing language in your community. So you could always switch to a new language, sure. You could you could choose to speak only Somali, say you live in London. And you choose to speak only Somali for the entire, you know, for your for the rest of your entire life. That's fine, but you're going to be limited to a small group of Somali speakers, a small network of Somali speakers, and you will immediately lose access to the broader uh, linguistic network, which is in you know spoken in London. Um, and say you were born to a small um, Russian-speaking village in Siberia. What choice do you have? you're locked locked into this, this, this linguistic network. With any kind of network system, although you're technically free to leave the network, that pressure will prevent you from doing so. So whether we realize it or not, we are imprisoned within networks of time, words, social media, currencies, and while we may scarcely notice their force operating on us, a pressure is locking us into these constructs. So when we try to leave the network, say speak a language where it's not, it is not spoken or you or, or, or use a foreign currency where it's not accepted that that power suddenly reveals itself, right? So um, lock in occurs because the cost of exiting the network is too high in terms of the loss of benefit or because the network is really the only game in town. And this applies readily to international organizations. As I said, it has a, has a broad, you know, wide breadth of ap- potential applications. But in this article, I'm applying it specifically the idea of lock in and network effect pressures specifically to international multilateral institutions, or IGOs, international governmental organizations. So the question I ask in this paper is, given the growing disruption to the international system, such as uh, the rise in populism, hypernationalism, the pandemic, and deglobalization, how can we strengthen the multilateral institutions that sustain international order? And so my point here is that we can do it by jacking up, by amplifying this network uh, the network effects, and, therefore, and thereby the lock-in effect. Now, I, I just want to make a, 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 an important proviso here. I'm not making any normative assumptions here. I'm not making the normative assumption that this liberal order is indeed worth saving. Uh, many people would argue uh, that it's not. Many would, would beg to the differ. There are many who do not benefit from the current global order established primarily by the US in the aftermath of World War II. Um, For example, many in the Global South arguably are not benefiting from this system. So, But I'll put that aside. I'm not making any normative assumptions here. I'm just doing a technical descriptive analysis of if you want to sustain this order, this is a structural mechanism that you can employ, policymakers can employ, to help do that. Well, just like Facebook or or, or the English language, international organizations are networks of actors that generate network effects, right? While, While states participate in institutions for a variety of reasons, Network effect pressures are always present, influencing their, their decisions and their choices. And states become locked into these organizations when the cost of non-participation in terms of loss of benefit grows too high, or the organization is simply the only viable game in town. So the ultimate value of a multilateral institution comes from its network. Uh, an institution, for example, with only one state, <laughs> you know, it has no value. It's like a, a language that only one person speaks and the more and the reverse is true so the more people more states who who engage in this institution then the more value it has so um, all igos to some extent they, they generate network effects and therefore they generate lock-in to some degree so in the article what i propose is specific strategies uh, in order to increase that lock-in effect now um, I go through, in the article, I go through quite a few of them, but uh, for purposes of remedy, uh, I will just, uh, I would just want to outline three here. Uh, while the extent to which this can prevent institutional uh, collapse is an open question, even minor effects can be really consequential in the right circumstances. In some circumstances, intensifying an organization's lock-in effect may prove to be a key element in preventing a faltering multilateral institution from completely unraveling. All right, so what are these three strategies? The first one I call member enlargement. So basically, you increase the size of the network, right? Increase the size of the network, it has more benefit. Users get locked into it. And most important here is that as the, as the network increases, it shuts out competing, potential competing networks. So I'll give you an example EU versus EFTA. So, you had two competing um, economic um, configurations for uh, Europe uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. But by the time 1973 rolled around and the UK jumped ship from from EFTA into the EEC, uh, I would argue that essentially tipped the balance between the two competing networks uh, to the, what later became the EU, and shut out EFTA. And AFTA is now just a, you know, a minor organization with a few, um, a few, a few states, Switzerland, uh, a few states are involved in AFTA while the EU dominates, uh, you know, European uh, political and economic intercourse. And that is, that is essentially the strategy of, of network enlargement, network effects, feedback, lock-in, and you shut out co- competitors. So that would be the first strategy, what I call member enlargement. Now the second strategy is uh, what I call member stuffing. Member stuffing. So basically, the idea here is what you do is you uh, to bolster the um, the strength of the of the organization. What you do is you bring in in quick succession weaker states. Uh, why? Because weaker states will um, weaker states will they're more locked into the system because they. They, in terms of uh, comparison between what they contribute and what they get out of the system, it, it, it's really, it's uneven. They get much more out of it than what they put into it. So they're more committed to the, to the organization, and therefore they, they help stabilize the organization. So I'll give you some examples that's too abstract. NATO. So uh, consider the case of NATO. At the end of the Cold War, many member states were questioning the purpose of NATO, given that its chief strategic adversary, the, the Soviet Union, no longer existed. So what was NATO's response to this? NATO responded with rapid network enlargement, incorporating a slew of weaker states across Eastern Europe. Now, whether or not they were cognizant that this was a, you know, a network strategy that they were adopting, this had the effect of bolstering NATO. The weaker states, you know, such as Lithuania, Estonia, they were more committed to the institution and then therefore more locked into the institution and then stabilized the institution. Okay, the third one uh, is uh, coordinating standards, embedding more coordinating standards if possible. Not all institutions allow for this strategy, but if if the organization is of a kind that allows for this sort of strategy, then it is very powerful. You embed coordinating standards. So, for example, uh, standard-setting bodies like the International Labor Organization, the ILO, uh, or the Telecommunication Union, ITU, or the IMF, International Maritime Organization, WIPO, the WHO, they all create standards. And as member states uh, use these standards, they become locked into these standards because it's not easy to jump from, if if, if your entire um, infrastructural matrix is uh, is set up for these standards, it's not easy just to jump to a new standard. Uh, So by intentionally creating new standards, and new standards around which the states will uh, um, converge, this will help stabilize the organization as well. Uh, And most importantly, this will shut out competing networks from getting a foothold in the market because it's hard for agents to switch between these standards. So they get locked in and it shuts out competing uh, networks and and thereby becomes the only game in town essentially. So, those are three of, I actually have proposed many more strategies, uh, but these are three strategies uh, that policymakers could incorporate to, uh, to bolster uh, the strength of the organization. Now, again, I just want to reiterate that um, you know, this is not necessarily a slam dunk way of securing these organizations, but it might have its effect only along the margins. But as I said previously, in some cases, a small difference can make a huge, you know, have huge consequences. And it can stop a, what otherwise would be a collapsing institution from, from falling apart. I'm not saying that policymakers are always cognizant of these strategies in, term, in, in network terms, in the terms that I lay out here, these structuralist terms that I lay out here. Uh, but the survival of institutions over the years can be attributed to the fact that they, they stumbled upon these strategies and incorporated these strategies which seems to be a fragmentation of international order uh, between the United States and the Western alliance systems and Russia and possibly China. Uh, that, uh, and particularly with recent events with, with Russia and Ukraine, uh, this fragmentation actually, although the West seeks to isolate Russia and uh, and, uh you know, remove it from the international system as much as possible financially and in trade and politically. Uh, this, ironically, uh, if you understand network effect, uh, effect pressures and lock-in and how they operate, this actually can be very self-defeating. This is actually very dangerous for the West. This may, in fact, further undermine the liberal order that they seek to, to, to maintain uh, because you're creating a separate network. Uh, it's creating a competitive network. So the liberal order is not the only game in town anymore. If you do this, if you fragment the system, it's not going to be the only game in town anymore. So if the U.S. wants to isolate China and Russia from the international system, they may ironically be be shooting themselves in the foot. So all all normative claims aside, uh, from purely a network perspective, the answer would be to not isolate these uh, adversaries, as they call them, uh, but to keep all players inside the network, because this this keeps the integrity and stre- it keeps the integrity of the network and strengthens the network. <clears throat> Excuse me, strengthens the network. So um, this is uh, from a network structural perspective. This is actually what is currently the policies that the West are currently undertaking is the exact opposite of what they should be doing if they're if their stated goals are to sustain the the liberal order that they created.